Good morning. Uh, really happy to be with you this morning. So looking forward to continuing our Scripture Talk series. And, you know, this is the third week of our new Scripture Talk series, Kings and Queens, where we've been looking and revisiting the lives of uh, some of Israel's uh, most famous and well-known kings and queens in the Older Testament, as, as their lives are explained. And, you know, um, over the last couple of weeks, uh, Pastor Dave, he, he began talking about King Saul, right? And some of, maybe some of the inadequacies that led to some of the decisions that he would make. And, um, you know, we, we all have, uh, uh, can feel inadequate at times, but sometimes Saul's life would help uh, lead him in a direction where he would make the best decisions. And then he talked about King David, and King David is, you know, I looked at certain incidences in his life where he was just remembered as being tender-hearted, and um, and not naive, but just very kind and trusting with the with of who God is. And so today we're going into part number three. We're going to talk about King Solomon. He's one of the most well-known kings in his, in the history of Israel. And today Solomon's going to tell us a little bit about respecting limits. We're going to learn what his life, uh, some moments in his life, have to say about that. So, you know, our, our passage to ponder is, is from John 18. And this is where Jesus says, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. He said, if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. His kingdom is from heaven, right? And, and you know, Jesus, uh, he does show that throughout Israel's history, you know, they wanted um, kings and queens like the neighboring nations. But these men and women are human beings, and they are, they'd have some great moments and they have some weak moments. Uh, but Jesus, the true king of Israel, the king of the world, he is the one that brings the kingdom of heaven to this place. So as we talked about, you know, last week when Pastor Dave touched on um, King David, the, well, his life, uh, he ruled the king of Israel for about 40 years. And, you know, Solomon is David's son, his second child with uh, Bathsheba. And, you know, we, we see Solomon, he's this well-known figure, and he's credited with writing and influencing a lot of the Older Testament. He's credited with writing much of Proverbs, um, which is just, you know, a lot of these practical wisdom sayings. He's also credited with writing the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon as well, which really talks about marital love and, um, and how, uh, what that looks like and how to do that well. And uh, then he also, uh, by most indicators, he is the writer of Ecclesiastes. See, the writer of Ecclesiastes always refers to himself as the teacher. But um, by a lot of what's in there, most uh, commentators will believe that uh, Solomon is the writer of Ecclesiastes. And, you know, he's also the focal point in 1 Kings from chapter 3 through chapter 11. And this is where we're going to pick up uh, the story of his life. So, um, the story of his life begins with really the end of his father's life, King David. And, you know, it, it, this, this won't be on the screen, but at the very beginning, you know, David's about, he's on his deathbed. He's about to die, and he gives this charge to Solomon, his son. He says, you know, I'm going the way of all the earth. I'm going to die. That's how it's going to be. But then he says to Solomon, his son, he says, so be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. And he says what this is. He says the Lord requires that you walk in obedience to him, listen to all his commands and keep them. And then he says that, you know, if you do this, then the Lord will actually honor the promise that God made to King David, which was, um, if your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me, all their heart and soul, 
uh, with all their heart and soul, then they will, you will never, King David will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. So that's how it begins, right? With David's last words to Solomon, I think some really cool ways to charge your son to do well and walk faithfully before the Lord. But then we pick it up here. And we pick it up in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 5. And it says this, you know, Solomon, I guess, well, just before that, Solomon, he makes this alliance with um, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he ends up actually uh, marrying Pharaoh's daughter. And if you know anything about the history of Israel, you'll know that that's actually quite a big deal because, um, you know, the Egyptians had enslaved the Israelites right, for 400 years. And, you know, it's weird that they now have this alliance with them where Pharaoh actually marries, um, Pharaoh actually marries his daughter off to King Solomon. So that right there is already a little uh, testament to maybe something is going on here that we're not really sure. The one thing I really like about, one of the things I really like about First Kings is the author just kind of writes these stories and he doesn't really make much uh, commentary. But what he does is says, writes this um, and explains the situation, and it kind of leaves it up to the reader to say, okay, was this a wise move or not? So Solomon, you know, he's married to Pharaoh's daughter. He begins to make sacrifices at all the local places, and that's not really what God had wanted. God wanted um, King David and Solomon to, to come and make a, a throne, uh, make a temple for him. So this is where we pick it up in verse 5. And it says, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Let's, let's pause right there. Um, wow, what a question. God says, what do you want me to give you? Ask anything. And it kind of reminds me of Jesus um, when he's walking along the road and Bartimaeus, who was blind, he calls out to him, you know, Messiah, Jesus. And Jesus says, Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? So if God asked you that question, what would you say? What do you want God to do for you? If he asked you, ask anything of me, what do you want me to do for you? It's quite a powerful question. So this is what God asked Solomon in the dream. And Solomon answered, verse 6, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne, on, on his throne this very day. He says, Solomon says, Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Right? He's talking about himself. He says, but I am only a little child and I do not know how to carry out my duties. Solomon could be, by any estimates, he could be as young as maybe 12 years old. Maybe he's as old as 20. It's, it's unclear, but he's a young man or boy even. And um, so then he says in verse 8, he says, your servant, this is himself, is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? What a great answer, right? He says, God, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a youth. I'm a, I'm a young man. I'm a boy. Uh, I need your help to govern your people well. This duty that you have in front of me is too much for me to bear on my own. And in verse 10, it says, The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. Of course, this is a great answer. So God, to him, God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administrating justice, I will do what you have asked. He says, I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never be anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Wow. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. 
And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and my commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Wow, God is definitely pleased with his answer because Solomon's answer is not, um, you know, right at this point, there's nothing that shows that it's self-seeking. He's just looking to do what's best for God's people. He wants to help build God's kingdom and he's doing so and he needs the Lord's wisdom. So Solomon starts off very well. He takes his office really seriously and he recognizes the need um, for godly wisdom to govern well. And this is it for all leaders, right? If leaders are to reach their potential, we really do need godly wisdom. And whether you're a leader in the political sphere or the education or business, um, you know, or you're a leader in the church or at home, wherever you find yourself, um, with leadership rooms, where a lot of leadership is influence. Wherever you find yourself, to reach your potential, you need godly wisdom to govern and to lead well, right? And Solomon recognizes this. And one thing I love, Solomon prays, he prays very specifically, which is so good, right? If you pray very specific prayers, you can really heed the Lord's answer. And it's not, um, it's not vague. It, it helps to show that you actually have a vision for where you want to go. So Solomon does this. And, you know, right after that, after um, in, in 1 Kings chapter 3, you know, Solomon's wisdom, it becomes on full display. There's this story which, uh, you know, if you're familiar with the Older Testament, you might know the story. But just the story of these two women, and they're both claiming to be the, um, the mother of this child. And Solomon comes up with what I would call a, uh, it's a, it's a creative solution, to say the least, on how to determine um, who is the uh, mother of this child. And so he shows this great wisdom in that way. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 3. But the thing is, you know, Solomon has these great strengths. He has this great wisdom. But sometimes our greatest strength, if it's left unchecked, if it is left um, without bounds to just kind of go about um, without, um, without restraint, then that great strength, it actually can turn out to be a weakness for us. You know, so Solomon, he gets wisdom, he gets riches, and it's also the text talks a little bit about how he seems to have, like, he seems to start to even enslave the people around him, which was really, um, that was a really big concern to the people of Israel, because they were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt, so they were taught not to do those things. But Solomon seems like he starts to do a little bit of that, which is really concerning. He starts to um, accumulate wealth, and he's building, and so he starts to accumulate wealth. Even a lot of the nations around him have to pay him tax tributes, and his wealth just grows so much immensely. But this is the way he went about it. And, you know, sometimes, even if we're having success in an area, it might lead to our downfall, and we're going to see that in Solomon's life. And, um, you know, we actually find out one of the main things, life without limits, it isn't fulfilling. And that's what Solomon shows us. So we're going to look at a couple um, areas of Solomon's life. So the first one we're going to look at is his wealth. So apparently with Solomon, unimaginable wealth, it wasn't enough. <laughs> it wasn't enough for Solomon. And we need to say, before we get into that, we need to say a little bit about the temple. So from the beginning, we get this picture in, in Genesis. At the beginning of time, uh, God creates the world, he creates human beings, and uh, we get this picture that God wants to live among his people in Genesis. It's a beautiful picture. So, you know, in the Garden of Eden, God is walking alongside Adam and Eve. There is harmony among people. There's harmony with nature and there's harmony with God. It's this beautiful picture. Sadly, of course, Adam and Eve sin. Sin enters the world, it brings death, it brings destruction, and it kind of limits the beauty of what this earth was intended to be. 
But we fast forward to the Exodus story, and this is when the Israelites, after being enslaved for those uh, 400 years by the Egyptians, Moses, of course, with God's help, he leads his people out of Egypt. And when he does this, God commands him to make um, a tabernacle, right? And this is a place, it's like this tent-like structure. And the whole idea with the tabernacle, it's going to kind of act and represent a place where God lived and dwelt with his people. So it's almost like it's going back to the garden. Several hundred years later, again, we come to uh, King Solomon's time, and the tabernacle is replaced by the temple that Solomon built. And the temple is built in Jerusalem. And the prophet Isaiah, he called, he called this temple, he called it a house of prayer for all the nations. So in this temple, in God's temple there, God's love is, and his care is just felt in a unique way. It's God's presence is there in a unique way. We know God can't be contained to a structure, but in that temple was built to honor him and worship him. He is, his presence is there in a unique way. And it says for anyone in, among the nations who would come there, they would actually um, encounter God's love and care if they came there to worship him. And you know, it's funny, in the New Testament, believers are called the temple of God because the Holy Spirit dwells within us, lives among us, and we are now called the temple. There's so much to see about this, say about that. But the, um, but the temple in Solomon's time that he built, it was used uh, with the finest materials. I mean, there was cedar everywhere. There was pure gold all across the room and all across the building. It had some of the most beautiful architectural designs ever made. Um, there were carved palm trees that kind of, again, represented the Garden of Eden there. There were carved images of cherubim. And cherubim are these really cool, weird, uh, angelic creatures. They're like these winged angelic creatures, and they have four faces. You know, they have a face of, uh, one face is face of an ox, and one's one of a lion, and uh, one's an eagle, and then the other one's a human. And the cherubim, they were actually placed in there to guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden in the beginning of time. So Solomon, again, mimics that and says, this is like the garden where we're actually going back to being in God's presence. So the temple is made beautifully, and it's made to represent the beauty of the garden. But here's what we're gonna um, here's what we're gonna encounter. Again, as the writer of First Kings is just noting, um, they don't make a commentary on how Solomon builds the temple. They just say this is what happened. This is what it looked like. So I want you to read into some of these things here. Solomon he builds the temple first of God, which is amazing and right, and he does this great, beautiful thing for God. The second thing is he builds a palace for himself which makes sense, a king should have a palace. But we're gonna look and compare the temple and the palace, and you can read into it. So in 1 Kings chapter six, uh, from verses two and 38, it says this, it says, the temple that King Solomon built um, for the Lord was about 90 feet long, this is our modern terms, about 90 feet long, uh, 30 feet wide, 45 feet high. It says it took about seven years to build the temple, right? Massive structure, a lot of times put into it, seven years. But building the palace, it says about this, it says Solomon also built the palace for himself, right? Which is good and right, there's nothing wrong with that. But it took Solomon 13 years to complete the construction of his palace. It was about 150 feet long, it was 75 feet wide, and it was 45 feet high. So from the get-go, what do you think? You know, Solomon's palace is much bigger than the temple of God that he made. This is an indicator, right? The, the, uh, the author of 1 Kings doesn't say 
is this good or bad? He just says, read it and you think about it for yourself. Solomon spends, it seems, more time, more money, more energy into building the palace than he does into building the dwelling place of God. And the things that they consume our energy, our time, our money, these are all indicators of what our heart truly values, right? Jesus says, you know, where your treasure is, there your, the desires of your heart will also be. And, you know, Solomon's right here are showing that his desires, his affections, are actually pointing to indulgence and self-gratification. He is getting to the point where he's more in love with the things for himself than he is with the things of God. So the affections of our heart, they indicate the direction of our feet. And that's what's happening with Solomon. It's going to indicate. So, you know, Solomon, again, makes this great, beautiful, amazing structure for the Lord, but makes an even greater one to kind of honor himself. And that's not a good look. It really isn't. Um, so, you know, we find out, though, that for Solomon, money isn't enough to satisfy Now we're going to go to the book of Ecclesiastes. And again, um, you know, most commentators would say this is Solomon that's writing it, but he calls himself the teacher in it all. And, you know, in the the first verse of Ecclesiastes says, these are the words of the teacher, King King David's son, uh, who ruled in Jerusalem. But in Ecclesiastes 5, when we realize that money isn't enough for him, he says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Remember, this is Solomon who is the wisest among people. And he says, this too is meaningless. He says, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? He's saying, you know, as as uh, whoever loves money, it's you can't satisfy that need, that desire for amount of money. You never have enough. If you're not happy with your income, the more you get, you'll still won't be happy. And then he says... The more your money increases, the more there are people who just want to take it away from you, right? He says there's more people who just want to consume it and take it from you. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the famous uh, Brooklyn philosopher, Notorious B.I.G., he once said, more money, more problems, right? If you know that, you know it's true. And Solomon knew it was true. The more money you get, the more people that are coming to take it from you. And he says all it is is to... The only thing good about it really is you just kind of watch it slip out of your fingers. That's the only benefit it has to you. So it's almost saying wealth is this craving that can't satisfy. It is an appetite that if we let it go unchecked, it cannot be fulfilled. And it's a thirst where we will always want more and thirst for more. And he says this is what money is. So Solomon had all this great money. Um, nations are bringing him tribute, but still it wasn't enough. And in the end, it actually creates a lot of problems. So let's look at, that's his wealth. Let's look at his areas of wisdom, right? So Solomon lived these um, immense lives. And let's see what Ecclesiastes has to say um, about how he felt after he lived this life of just unrestraint. And so, you know, um, in the beginning, it, it shows that God, he gave Solomon this like amazing wisdom, and uh, understanding and knowledge. It said it was as vast as the sands of the seashore, meaning his wisdom was just unmatched, right? We can't even comprehend how amazing his wisdom was. It said his wisdom exceeded all the, um, all the wise men in the East and the West, all over the surrounding nations. And then it also says, you know, his, his fame actually spread among the nations because of this. And Solomon's credited um, in, in 1 Kings with composing about 3,000 proverbs and over 1,000 songs, right? And so, you know, some of which we have in the Older Testament. 
And it says Solomon could speak with authority on all kinds of things. He knew things about plant life. He knew things about the great cedars of Lebanon. He knew things about um, all kinds of animals, birds, insects, fish, everything. He had immense knowledge in all of these areas. And people would actually travel all the way to Jerusalem to hear Solomon speak on these matters. So his wisdom is unmatched, like we said. And Solomon himself, he says, I was wiser than all the kings of Israel before me. He said, I had a greater knowledge and wisdom more than any of them. And I even decided to study wisdom in and of itself as a topic for me. And then in Ecclesiastes 1.18, towards the end of his days, what does he say? He says, the greater my wisdom, <laughs> the greater my grief. To increase in knowledge only increases sorrow. And if you're a student, you said, amen, right? He's saying that wisdom is this great thing. It's a way of practical living, knowledge and understanding in all these different areas, this beautiful world that God made, um, you know, the study of it to understand how it's made. We learn more about ourselves. We learn more about creation. He says all these things are great. They truly are. But Solomon says they come at a cost. And that's the truth, right? Think about when you're studying, right? the time for study and for application, all that effort, all that planning, all that um, wondering and say, you know, how can I learn this to show that I've learned it well? What are the outcomes going to be? You know, if you've gone to, if you've done any extra studies, a lot of times people in these days, we study not just for studies it's, itself sake, but we study hoping they'll have a good outcome that will be actually be able to have a job that we enjoy and uh, be able to add a contribution to society. But think about all the anxiety that comes with the results and outcomes. And of course, there's a financial cost to study as well, too. There's time away. There's opportunity costs and finances. So Solomon is saying study is great and wisdom is wonderful. But in the end, it still caused me some grief and sorrow because there's a lot of things that come along with studying, with understanding. And we can relate to that. We can understand that, that that is true. Just the fact of just gaining all wisdom is not itself, in and of itself, going to be fulfilling. There's a cost to it. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, Paul, he's speaking to the Corinthians in, in chapter 8 um, of, of his first letter to the Corinthians. And he's talking a little bit about kind of food um, dedicated to idols. But he says this thing. He says that, you know, knowledge, like when we understand matters, he says that knowledge can make us feel important, but it's really love that strengthens the church. And Solomon starts to, you know, realize and understand that, that as good as knowledge is, it is a great thing. But it's in the end, it can sometimes serve to actually bring up our pridefulness. And, you know, the people of God, uh, Paul saying, and Jesus, of course, said before him, that it's really love that's going to strengthen us and what we'll be known for, right? We, Jesus, we know he had all knowledge. Uh, he knew all things, he understood all things, yet he's known for his love. Right, so again, for Solomon, wisdom is not fulfilling in and of itself. Okay, we're going to look now, though, at Solomon, the, the part that's probably most known about his life, and we're going to look at how his life without limits is really exemplified in this area of his life, and it's a really cautionary tale. Solomon, you know, he had a second encounter with God. He had that first one in the dream at the very beginning that we spoke to, but he had a second one, and this was after he dedicated the temple. And, you know, we're looking about 1 Kings chapter 9 here. And, you know, before he dedicated the temple, he had this great prayer and God heard it. And God said, I heard your prayer and this, um, this temple that you've built to honor me. He said, this was so good. And he said, I'll always watch over it. Right. He heard um, 
he said, I always watch over the temple because it's near and dear to my heart. But then he says to Solomon, he says in uh, 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 4, he says, As for you, though, Solomon, if you follow me with integrity and godliness, just like David your father did, if you obey all my commands, then I will establish your throne on your dynasty forever. He said, For I made a promise to your father David that one of your descendants will always sit on the throne. Right? So this is an amazing promise, but it's kind of conditional. He says, if you do these things, then you'll always have a descendant that sits on the throne. And then he says, though, he says, if you don't, though, he says, if you serve and worship other gods, then I will root Israel up from this land and I will reject the temple. And that temple that you made to honor me, it will be rejected. And what will happen is it will actually lead to the destruction of the temple. And he says the people all around, the nations around will just kind of wonder, what happened to the temple? This amazing structure that Solomon built for the dedication of the Lord. Um, what happened to it? And God will say, uh, God says that, he says the answer will be is because these people abandoned the Lord their God and they started to, um, they, they abandoned the Lord, the God who brought their ancestors out of Egypt, and they actually worshiped other gods instead and bowed down to them. And he said, that's going to lead to the destruction of the temple. Fast forward, that's exactly what does happen. God is um, uh, saying, if you do this, Solomon, turn your heart from me. This is what will happen. And sadly, that does happen. But here's an important part of the story that we're going to look at Solomon, this area of his life where he really, truly lived without restraint. Um, you know, and, and it begs the question before, what about interracial or interethnic marriage? Because if you're familiar with uh, this passage for Solomon that we're about to read, you would think from the very get-go, God has to be against interracial and interethnic marriage because it seems, on the surface, it can seem like that. Um, but again, when we look at 1 Kings 9, God says, the temple will be rejected and it will lead to its destruction if you turn and serve other gods and worship them instead of worshiping me. So let's look at a couple examples to show you that I don't believe God is against uh, interracial or interethnic marriage. And, you know, one of them are Moses and his wife, who is Cushite. And, um, you know, Moses' wife, she's from Cush, which today would be in the modern region of that's just south of Egypt. And it would be kind of in between South Sudan and Ethiopia. And um, Daniel Hayes, in his book, uh, From Every People and Nation, it's a, it's a biblical theology of race, Daniel Hayes writes that Cush is used regularly to refer to the area south of Egypt and above the cataracts on the Nile, where a black African civilization flourished for over 2,000 years. He says, it's, so, it's quite clear that Moses marries a black African woman. And why that's important is, um, as we look at Solomon's life here, and, and, and we're learning about God and interethnic and interracial marriages, Mo Moses' wife comes up in this story where Moses' sister Miriam actually blames some of the hardships that are going on on the fact that Moses married this Cushite woman. She's very explicit in saying it's because you married that Cushite woman. And, you know, the Cushites are, no are known for their darker, beautiful skin. And so, interestingly enough, um, God responds to Miriam by actually striking her with leprosy. And he doesn't correct Moses. He doesn't correct Moses' wife. He corrects Miriam in really, really strict terms and really strong terms. Um, and another well-known interracial couple in, in the Bible is uh, Ruth. If you know the story of Ruth, she's a Moabite. She's not Jewish. And um, she ends up marrying Boaz. And they actually are part of the lineage that leads to Jesus. 
Um, but you know, at the beginning of, of Ruth's story, we find out that she lost her first husband and her first husband was the son of her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Naomi actually lost a couple of sons. So Ruth had a sister-in-law, um, Orpah. And Orpah, after her husband leaves, she just goes back to her God and people. But this is what happens with, with uh, Ruth though. Naomi says to Ruth, you know, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and gone back to serve her gods. You should do the same. You should find yourself a husband among your people and just go live your life. And Ruth replies, and she says, don't ask me to leave you. I, I never will. She says, where you go, I will go. And says, where you live, I will live. She says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God, right? It's this beautiful, awesome line where Ruth says, no, I'm gonna follow you. I'm gonna serve the one true God. And eventually she meets a husband, Boaz. And like I said, they lead to the lineage of Jesus. And Ruth is about one of five women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. So that's one example. There's also Joseph. Joseph actually ends up um, marrying an Egyptian woman, Potiphar's wife, and she becomes the mother of his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. There's other examples. We don't have time for it. But why these are important is because we look at a moment in Solomon's life where it's very, where it's very easily on the surface to think, oh, God just doesn't like these intercultural uh, marriages. But if we remember from 1 Kings chapter 9, he says, if your heart turns against me, that's what's going to lead to your downfall and the downfall of the temple. So we, we pick it up here in 1 Kings chapter 11. King Solomon, however, he loved many foreign women. You could underline many there, as we'll see. Uh, many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. He loved Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. King Solomon loved them all. He said, they were from nations, God says, they were, or the, the writer says, they were from nations about which the Lord had told Israel, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had, listen to this, he had 700 wives of royal birth and he had 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. Yeah, yeah, a thousand women probably would. Um, it says, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He, he, this is what Solomon's life is uh, throughout this time. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Molech was a god whose followers often... Um, they were known for human sacrifice and child sacrifice even, and Solomon followed them, it says. It says, so Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had come. And verse 9 says, this is my emphasis, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. Not just because he married these women, but he was because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. And he says, although he had forbidden Solomon, not to intermarry really, but to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. Solomon marries. He has a thousand women in his life. That is unimaginable and it cannot be good for you. Solomon has all these wives, all these concubines. And what chance did he really have to influence them to follow the one true God? None. He didn't have a chance at all. You're at a thousand to one odds. More than likely, they're going to influence you and take your heart away from God as opposed to you influencing them and pointing them to God. So Solomon, in the end, he indulges his 
um, fantasies, his desires, his sexual appetite to the nth degree, and it takes him away from God, right? And so, you know, we, we come back and at the end of, uh, towards the end of Solomon's reign, uh, God actually revisits him again. And he says, this is, since this is your attitude, he says, you haven't kept my covenant or my commands. And he says, I'm going to tear the kingdom away from you. He said, and I'll actually, I won't tear it all from you, but I'll tear it from the people who follow your, um, your lineage and they'll be given to one of your subordinates. And he does say that, um, you know, this is what Solomon's brought upon himself because Solomon, he chooses in the end to follow other gods. He can't even blame it on his wives. So those are the choices that he made to do that. And unlike um, the good choices that we'd seen through Moses and his wife and Boaz and Ruth. So the, the one thing that we learn here is living without limits for Solomon it impedes our ability to finish well, and it really hurts our legacy. Solomon, um, his kingdom is, at the end of his kingdom, is actually seen some war and some turmoil. And um, his son inherits the kingdom, Rehoboam, which we'll learn about. And Rehoboam, most of the kingdom is torn away from him. The kingdom actually becomes fractured now. Now there's um, two kingdoms in Israel's history, and, and you know, they're, they're warring against each other. It's really, really sad turn. And, you know, sadly, there have been many women or many men and women, too, who have really hurt their legacy with an inability to restrain their sexual appetite. And this desire for more, and especially in a very visceral um, need and desire like uh, sexual intimacy, it can really take us into these paths that hurt ourselves and hurt other people around us. Um, Solomon's life shows that God places these loving bounds around us. And he says the best way to have a fulfilling, physical, intimate, loving relationship is between one man and one woman uh, joined together in a, um, in a monogamous, committed marriage. And Solomon does not do that. He lives the exact um, you know, opposite of that and and it really does hurt him. And, you know, uh, in the end, you know, Solomon's heart is changed because his affections, they grow um, more for um, these other gods than God of Israel. He doesn't commit to God fully like his father David did. And, and you know, for those persons who um, have made mistakes and we see some leaders who have really hurt their legacies with these sort of things, we don't look upon them in judgment. We look upon them as a cautionary tale. Something that teaches us to say, except for the grace of God, there go I. Something that teaches us to say, to restrain every single desire that we might have. Because we find out that restraints and limits around our lives, they are actually good, helpful bounds. And when we step outside of them, we actually end, uh, end up hurting ourselves and others. So Solomon at the end in Ecclesiastes, he says this. He says, you know, he became greater. He says, I became greater than all of the kings and all the people who had lived in Israel before me. He says, you know, my wisdom never failed me. And he said he found all kinds of pleasure in his hard work and labors. And he, he said this thing. He said, whatever I looked upon, I, I wanted it and I took it, he says. But he says in the end, it was all meaningless. He, he said that he had everything a man could ever want, is what he said. But he said in the end, it's all meaningless. And it actually gets to the point where he says he began to hate life. He didn't see anything that was really good about it because none of it was truly fulfilling. 
And we see Solomon at the end of his days who's very depressed. And you would think that getting every single thing you want in life wouldn't make, um, would fulfill you. But Solomon says, no, that's not the case. Living these unrestrained lives, actually, um, they don't end up fulfilling us, but they hurt us. So again, if God had asked you, what do you want? Uh, what would you say? But more importantly than what would you say, I think, why would you say it? Are you, would you be saying it because you want to kind of indulge in something that kind of builds you up, works for your pride, or something that wants to um, fulfill all of your uh, bases, needs, or wants? Or would you be doing it just to make and build the kingdom of God better? I think God's heart really is, um, is for that. So even with all this, Solomon still showed grace. Most of his kingdom of his life, even throughout his, his um, life of just excess and abundance, most of his life is known as being a very peaceful life. It's only towards the end there's some struggles there. And um, he didn't actually lose all the kingdom in his lifetime. It, it unfortunately happened to his sons, though. And so God's love, we want to know that no matter what we have done in the past, God's love knows no bounds, right? We have a limitless God that um, he, he says, walk within these limits because that, be, that would be good for us. But his love is limitless. And no matter what we've done, we can know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you want to put up, just really quick, if you want to put up some good boundaries for your life to finish well, um, here's a few thoughts. If you're married, guard your bond with your spouse and don't replicate it with someone else, right? Just keep that special bond between your spouse and don't try and emulate that with another person. Another thing we can do is to seek contentment. Um, you know, it's this really cool thing. I read this book by Jordan Rayner, Redeeming Your Time, which I really liked. And he talks about the idea that Jesus is our both our source of ambition and he's our source of rest. And the, the whole idea is this. We can do these amazing, um, you know, for lack of a better word, outrageous, bold, beautiful things for God. And we should because Jesus says he wants us to live a life of, to our fullest potential, trusting in him. And that's really good. We can have these uh, BHAGs, right? Big, hairy, audacious goals. We can work very hard to achieve them because Jesus makes us ambitious. He completed all the work he did and he wants us to complete our work. But Jesus is also the source of our rest. So even if we don't achieve all these great things that we set out to, we can rest knowing that Jesus still loves us. So there's a contentment in knowing, do your very best, but whatever the outcome, the Lord loves you. Um, another thing that you can do is rest and keep the Sabbath, right? Um, find times where you say, you're gonna take a break from work. Use that to replenish yourself. And along those same lines, you know, live by a calendar. Put bounds around your time. Talk about your wake-up times and your sleep times and times to eat and exercise and times for work and for study. And uh, make sure you schedule in there times to meet regularly with God's people. Focus time in God's presence and, you know, there's through worship and small group, all those things. You do that and you find that 24 hours is actually a lot of time and we can do a lot with it. So. Solomon's life. This cautionary tale about respecting limits and how if we don't live them, it can hurt us. But also a life that shows that um, human beings are complicated. We can um, trust the Lord and do some really great things and we can have some weaker moments. And um, there's grace. We thank God that where um, sin abounded, grace abounded even more. But let's learn to live our very best lives. So let me pray for us quickly. Heavenly Father, we just... Um, we just thank you, dear God, that you are a God who is loving and merciful and good. We thank you, Lord, for the bounds that you place around our lives, Lord, the fact that, um, you know, 
we have to sleep because we need rest. That's a bound, that's a limit that we have, Lord. We cannot continue going without sleep for very long. Uh, but Lord, you don't sleep. You're a limitless God. And so we can actually rest knowing that you're still in control of things. Thank you, Lord, for the bounds that you say are best for us, for us to walk in when in our relationships, dear God. So we just pray we're gonna continue to disrespect that and honor that, dear God. Uh, thank you, Lord, that we can be ambitious, Lord, and we can do great things for you, but that doesn't have to be our aim because we know that if we don't achieve them, we can rest in the fact that you love us. And thank you, dear God, that um, uh, wealth in and of itself is not a bad thing, dear God. There's nothing wrong with it. But if it causes us to serve it and not you, then that might be an issue with our limits. So for the one who's having issue with limits right now, Lord, and struggling with it, please help um, provide with them good ways that we can um, put helpful bounds and helpful limits around our life so that we can live lives that honor you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.